SUSE is a global leader in innovative, reliable, secure enterprise-grade open-source solutions relied upon by more than 60% of the Fortune 500 to power their mission-critical workloads. They specialize in business-critical Linux, enterprise container management and edge solutions, and collaborate with partners and communities to empower customers to innovate everywhere, from the data center to the cloud to the edge and beyond. SUSE puts the open back in open source, giving customers the agility to tackle innovation challenges today and the freedom to evolve their strategy and solutions tomorrow. Welcome to the Kubernetes Center of Excellence podcast. Nick Marcarelli here, here with Robert Hodges. Robert, how's it going? How's your Friday? It's going great, Nick. Thank you very much uh, for having me on the show. Awesome. We've taken a little break um, from really a long summer. We haven't done an episode, so you're our first episode back in a while, which is very exciting. So we, we usually like to start off with you telling us a little bit about yourself, your background, um, how you got into technology. Um, so give us a little biographical overview. Sure. Let me start with how I got into, into technology or specifically computers. It was in January of 1972, which is a while ago, <laughs> I, our seventh grade science teacher had heard about computers and um, he signed up for a time-sharing service. This is back in the day, you, you didn't actually have a computer yourself, but you had a subscription with a time-sharing service. And this subscription came along with a teletype. It was a beautiful Texas Instruments teletype that could read paper tape and could talk to the time-sharing service through a 300 baud dial-up modem. I think it was 300 baud. It might have even been slower. So <laughs> it was, you know, it was in the back of the lab. Um, the teletype was there and uh, the modem and then a book with a pink cover that said, welcome to Washtenaw Computing Services and the basic programming language. And you just, I just opened the book. I, there was nobody there to show us how to do it. I just opened the book. It's, it taught you how to, how to dial them up, stick the, stick the phone in the coupler, and then you could start writing basic programs. And so my first basic program was a geology, or excuse me, not geology, but a geography quiz. Like, what is the capital of Virginia? Richmond. That was one of the questions. And gotcha. you know, then give you a score at the end. Uh, I've been doing computers ever since. So um, I did it, you know, mostly as a hobby as a kid until about 1978. Got my first real job as a computer operator. That That's what they used to call sysadmins, um, working on IBM mainframes. And then I uh, went through six startups. I've been working on data and databases since 1983 or so. And uh, this is startup number six. Um, I got into this one because uh, one of my best friends was working with ClickHouse had started this company and, uh, and wanted some help. So um, we talked a little bit. I ended up joining the company. Gotcha. So talk us through briefly... Um... You know, you got in on the data side. So what did mm -hmm. that look like when you started doing data work and how that's gotten to you where you are today? Can you well, walk us through that journey a little bit? Yeah, that, that's great. I was working on, I was actually in the military and working as a programmer. Um, and uh, we were working on IBM mainframes using 3270 terminals. So at least it wasn't cards, at least not too much of the time. But uh, they, the unit I was in bought this database called M204. And uh, it's, a, it's a pretty well-known uh, database developed by Computer Corporation of America. They were located in Cam Cambridge, Massachusetts. 
And I think it's fair to say it was the most fascinating piece of software I'd ever seen. Uh, you could stick data into it, you could get it out. I, I learned about how it, you know, what the file structure was like. Uh, it, uses in, it used inverted indexes. It was pre-relational, so it was, you had to understand the structure of the data. It didn't talk SQL. We actually were programming it, um, you know, using a form system called SPF and COBOL, which, uh, mm. you know, people really did do a lot of COBOL back in those days, and I was one of them. And so I was building apps uh, uh, on top of this database, and I loved it. And when I got out of the military, I actually really wanted to go work for these guys, but they had the, the whole thing was written in IBM Assembler. I didn't know Assembler, so... I didn't, I didn't get that job, but I did get a job about five years later working with Sybase, which was my first industry job on databases. And that was everything from connectivity to front ends to uh, database internals. We tried to write a replacement for the Sybase SQL server. And that's ever since then, every job I've had either was working on a database directly or working on the applications that ran on top of it. Got it. Okay. And then fast forward us to your organization today, what you guys are doing, what that's based on. I, I know it's open source, so you know, you feel bet. free to talk about that. Yep, we're, we're an enterprise provider for ClickHouse. It's a very popular, uh, what we call a real-time analytic database. It's one of the most popular analytic databases on GitHub. Uh, last year, there were uh, something like 400 unique individuals who contributed pull requests. Uh, it was first developed at Yandex, which is a company that um, in less troubled times was called the, the Google of Russia. Uh, and they developed this as a custom database to help address or to store data f uh, for something called Yandex Metrica. It is a program that is actually a competitor to Google Analytics. It's very popular even today. And um, so they had a problem which was when you're reading all this web data, people want to ask different kinds of questions that involve aggregates. Like, hey, looking across these pages, you know, day by day or hour by hour or site by site, what's average time on page? What's bounce rate? You know, all these different things. And then maybe split them out by geographic, you know, origin, originating geographic region. These are questions that you either have to have a database that can you either have to guess in advance what people are going to ask, so you pre-aggregate it, and that's kind of what they were doing on MySQL, or you get a database that can actually do it straight off the raw data, you know, within a second or two. Hmm. That database didn't really exist for them, so they wrote it themselves and uh, ran it in-house till 2016, open-sourced it. At that point, one of my best friends, uh, a guy called Alexander Zaitsev, heard about it, and he was running an analytics group in San Carlos in the in the Bay Area. They were doing uh, real-time bidding for ads and doing all kinds of analytics on on strategy. They tried it out, and and he loved it. It was it was fast. It was extremely cost efficient. At the time, they were using Vertica, which is a well-known database, but mm -hmm. it was having scaling problems, and it just wasn't cost efficient. Uh, so this database was a success, but it was really raw. I mean, to the extent there was documentation, it was written in Russian, um, had a lot of, you, you know, you had to use it just right or it would fall over. So he founded a company to help people use it. And that was in 2017. And we built from there. We're now a cloud service provider. We wrote the original, um, we wrote the Kubernetes operator so that this database is now runs cloud native. Uh, we have hundreds of customers and, uh, 
both self-managed as well as running in the cloud. And, you know, so it's, it's a really vibrant business with customers doing some really, really interesting apps around real-time data. Gotcha. So my, my domain is more infrastructure, Kubernetes for sure, but more on the infrastructure yeah. side, less on <laughs> yeah. the, uh, yeah. less on the data side. So I'm, I'm going to ask a question and it's probably going to be a dumb one, but you help, help guide me here. So is ClickHouse the technology underlying, like when it integrates with like a Vertigo, like you said, hmm. um, I, like I know some people use like Kafka to do that. Is that, yes. is that a similar type of tool? Is it, um, is there a big difference? Um, actually there is a difference. So Kafka is an, is uh, what we call an event stream or implements right. event streams. So these are streams of, of, uh, you know, for example, let's say you're, you know, you have a monitoring system that collects observability data from hundreds or thousands of hosts running in your cloud environment. You'll stick them, each of those hosts will have a little process, which is collecting data and dumping mm -hmm. it in a Kafka. Our data warehouse is the other end of that pipe. So it's where those Kafka events go to live so that people can, first of all, notice that interesting things are happening, um, then go ahead and do analyses on them to find out what's going on. Let me make that more concrete. That architecture, is really common in things like security event and incident management. So these are very large systems. They could be monitoring hundreds of thousands of devices that are generating in the aggregate tens of millions of events per second. They get dumped into, come through Kafka, get dumped into um, into ClickHouse. ClickHouse can first of all handle this this level of load, mm -hmm. um, and the the, the answer uh, come in, they're instantly queryable. You can then identify things very quickly that are happening of interest in the environment. And then, and this is probably the most important part, once you see something like, hey, you've got a host that's starting to make requests to a known malware server, you can now sift through the data to find out, hey, when did this start happening? How many other hosts are doing this? Are there commonalities between the hosts? Like, are they running the same app? Is it the same version of the app? And you can then maybe zero in to, hey, there's an app here. Either it's an infection or maybe there's, you know, somebody's done a, you know, done an attack on one of the libraries you're using and you're starting to, your applications are infected. ClickHouse, this kind of application, ClickHouse is just built to order. That's what it does mm -hmm. really well. Got it. Okay. No, that's helpful. Appreciate that. So, and, and I, I always like to hone in on like what your organization's doing. So um, do you have like a high level story you can tell about how you're helping a customer? You don't have to name yes. anybody, but you know, yeah. tell us like how you guys are making an impact in the marketplace and changing, sure. transforming I, something. Yeah, I can actually, I, I, you know, I'd be happy to do that. So uh, we enable people to, to build these real-time applications. Um, but what that means concretely is we help them with ClickHouse. And we can either provide support for people who want to run it themselves, and that's about half of our customers, mm -hmm. or we can take care of running it for them in the cloud and give them support. Um, so why is the, the cloud part, I think everybody gets, uh, if you stick it in a cloud, you don't have the trouble of running these these complex uh, systems yourself. You don't have to worry about backups. You don't have to worry about connectivity. There's, we take care of a raft of security issues. Um, and uh, so, you know, that is, uh, you know, that's an obvious value add. The support is a little bit more interesting. Um, 
databases are complex beasts and ClickHouse in particular is a bit like a high performance race car. It's great, but you got to point it in the right direction and you, you need to use it well. Um, otherwise it's, you know, either not going to give you the answer that you answers that you want as quickly or as efficiently, or it's actually going to break. So we provide the support and the guidance that allows people to use it effectively. Right. Because that, you know, database technology is widely free. But yeah. Actually implementing and care and feeding for it over time is where right. you know, tuning it. <laughs> that's, that's the hard stuff, right? Absolutely. So. Absolutely. And ClickHouse, like a lot of open source databases, requires to use it effectively, you actually have to understand what's going on inside. Not everybody has that knowledge or they don't all, not everybody acquires that knowledge at the same time. So when a team realizes they have a problem that, that, that needs ClickHouse, they can come to us and we already have the expertise. We know, you know, like everything from, hey, what's going on inside the code? When can we expect bugs to get fixed? Or when will new features arrive? When are they stable? All the way to give me some guidance for how to you know set this up, how to do compression, all the things that are necessary that to, to make to make it work. So we're kind of like supplement the development team so that they don't have to become deep ClickHouse experts. Sure. And so ClickHouse is uh or I guess you're offering for your company, you're doing that on the pure open source. You're just bringing yes. the, the knowledge, right? You haven't, yeah, absolutely. You haven't forked that's, it or premium it or yep. anything like that. That's, that's a big part of our value proposition. So everything we do, and we believe this very firmly, everything inside, inside the reporting stack should be 100% open source. So it's so that if we go away or the customer, or for some reason, we're not available, that this stuff still runs. People should never be locked into this technology. Right. Um, what the, where we supply proprietary uh, software is in management. So things like, uh, well, obviously the cloud, but also things like, you know, auditing for security, for example. These are things which are necessary to meet compliance requirements or to, to reduce the effort. But if they go away, your system still runs. Right. Okay. Yeah. That, you know, that's the funny thing about open source in 2023 what what we traditionally have had is that kind of pure play. The code is the code. There's yes. these people that stand up companies that are, you know, they, they have experts and they help the customer on the journey. Yep. And then we started going to the kind of open core to freemium model, mm -hmm. you know, just like any other software. And right. I think it really, it really diluted the value of open source to, I think a common mm -hmm. consumer um, mm -hmm. over time. And we're seeing, I think, a push back to that kind of the roots of open source where it's, I mean, you could, you could say that in some ways, but um, a lot of the newer technologies have this very like pure approach to open source, which is really refreshing. Right. I think it's, but I think it's actually kind of a challenging time for open source. I think, because I think there was sort of an, an arc, um, you know, there were projects like MySQL, like Postgres, for example, mm -hmm. like Kubernetes that you know, establish themselves as open source and, you know, and people built companies around them. So for example, MySQL, great example, MySQL AB, which, you know, was built around, it was the single company that was, you know, sort of shepherding and, 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 and building MySQL built a huge community around it. Mm -hmm. And I think what happened over, you know, with companies like MySQL with the Hadoop um, uh, ecosystem, venture capitalists realize, hey, there's a pattern here where we can have these 
these projects, they often, you know, reach hundreds of thousands or even millions of developers. So it became kind of an economic or investment pattern where you'd build a huge community and then, you know, you'd then form a company, inject a bunch of capital in it, build more stuff around it, and then try and just monetize that community. Um, as a result, because of all this VC money came in, there's lot, been lots of open source projects. The problem that we're seeing right now is that cheap money has dried up because interest rates have gone up. There's less sure. investment going on. So now you see challenges where these companies that, you know, built these projects and, and delivered great software can't, you know, are not necessarily profitable businesses uh, just from supporting them. Because if people can use them freely, they're not necessarily going to pay. Yeah. And there was definitely a strategy, I think, around that in, uh, yeah. Silicon Valley, right? It's like, Oh, absolutely. It's a, it's go, a standard playbook. Go get, go get a thing, go get a yeah. big valuation, you know, get the, yeah. get the billion dollar valuation, be a unicorn. Yeah. yeah. And, and it won't matter when you're a founder, right? You're going to get your lick and it's going to be fine. Right. right. But, but to your point, that could end a project eventually because you still need some infu infusion of passion or cash. Yes. Yeah. And and often when the cash leaves, so does the passion, yeah. which is kind of how it's become. Yeah. I And the, the fact is that it is, I think one of the things that people are grappling with today is it, it is hard to make money off open source projects because not every, if people don't have to pay, many of them won't and, or they won't even, and they won't even contribute. And that's just, that's, there's nothing evil about that. That's how human nature works. Right. I, mean, I have, we do a huge amount of stuff in open source. We try to push, uh, as you know, uh, you know, we have sort of base infrastructure. You push out, push out. It's all Apache too. We we will, you know, you know, while I'm around, we're never going to change that. Um, you know, but at the same time, um, we consume a lot of open source. You know, stuff I don't even know about that I consume. There's no way I can even contribute to it in that case. So, so I think. Like one of the things we've seen is I think the most prominent example of this is uh, HashiCorp with Terraform, mm. which if you're an infrastructure person, you may have been paying attention to. Uh, they're not making money. So they need to, you know, they're in a bit of a bind. They need to, you know, to get more money out of their software. Um, it's hard to do. And one of the ways they've done it is is by relicensing so that they can put right. more pressure on people to get them to pay. And that's gone and, over... Um poorly from a sentiment perspective i would say I, in the engineering community yeah i think it's yeah i think it's a really difficult it, i i don't want to criticize them because i think they're in a bind but i think they also it's something that you could let's say you could see it coming that if you have yeah. something that is free and I, actually one of my favorite management books is machiavelli's prince and uh, he has some pretty good things to say in there about bad things. You don't want to do them very, you want to don't want to do them much. And then you want to do them all at once because people react really badly to having stuff taken away. On the other hand, if you're doing giving, if you're giving people things, you want to spread it out over time so that they appreciate it. So this notion of having something out there that you thought you, that was free and that you were consuming, having it taken away just creates this really negative reaction. And that's yeah. true of anything even, re, you know, from open source licensing to, you know, to anything else you consider. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, we've seen a lot of strong opinions about yeah. that move specifically. And I agree with you. Like I, 
maybe am somewhat compassionately moved by the position HashiCorp's in around that because they make great tools. They're, they're excellent. Excellent tools, yeah. right? So yeah. when you make great tools, that it costs money to continue to innovate right. and make great tools. Yep. And you need capital to do that. Yep. And I think... I think that's the thing that gets a little lost maybe just in the engineering community is that just because it's been free um, and it's been passionately worked on doesn't mean like it'll be like that forever. And, right. it, and then it also is that fair, right? Yeah. So I, so I'm actually partnered with a, a monitoring uh, company and uh, we, we uh, resell and integrate and do consulting for their stuff in North America. And they are pure open source. Right. So they, they drew a dividing line about a year ago where they said, if you're using enterprise Linux packages, we're going to build those for you. Mm -hmm. And you're going to pay, you're going to pay for them because right. they're enterprise. You're already paying mm -hmm. for the operating system. Right. But if you're going to use Ubuntu, CentOS at the time, mm -hmm. um, you know, any other free distribution of, you know, open SUSE, yeah, all that, it's still free. So mm -hmm. they, I think they did it really cleverly where they, you know, they basically just said, if you're going to have like an Amazon Linux two or a rel variant, yep. Um, or SLES. Yeah. Hey, you can pay for those packages. Yep. But if you're going to do, if you're going to do it on, 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 you know, Ubuntu, you're going to do it on Arch or whatever, like those packages are free. Right. Right. And they even got some pushback around that. And I thought that was one of the nicest ways to try to like generate some actual revenue to continue to move the yeah. project forward. I, yeah, I think the other thing, so this was sort of um, something that we did was we didn't take a lot of VC money. We, we did it. We got a seed from Excel and um, I'm really grateful to them for supporting us, but we had also decided that, I mean, there were some things happened in the market that we never did the series a and, you know, got on the rocket ship, but it was partly because we didn't want to. Sure. Um, we're actually more comfortable running a bootstrap company. The fact is you don't grow as fast. In some ways there's a, and there's a level of stress. You have to be very good at managing cash. You have to figure out how to make money with what you've got. Right. Uh, and you also have to recognize that you're not going to get the hundred to one return on investment that, that sometimes people can achieve with, uh, you know, with the right company at the right time. Uh, Snowflake is an example of a company that's just, you know, been a moonshot in the data business, a database business. Right. Um, but most companies don't, you know, don't land like that. So, um, so that's, I think, you know, in addition to being kind of upfront with your users, you also have to just accept that you're going to have a different business model and it's not necessarily going to be easy. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The easy button is not always the best yeah. way. I think I think to be you know to, you know on the other hand if you take a bunch of money um, you know say you take three hundred you know say five hundred million in funding it's hard in a different way which is yeah you've got a runway and while you're sort of halfway down that runway things are pretty comfortable and everybody has nice lunches but there's a time when when those folks who gave the money they're looking for a return on investment and then you're right. going to have to you will have to do things to get that investment that you won't necessarily want to do yeah and you still got to manage that. Yeah, like burn rate at that, that point, right? Yeah. It's it's you know Yeah, exactly. You don't <laughs> so it's not call, like that. call cash flow. It's it's yeah, you know, it's how long to Yeah. 
Yeah. How long until um, somebody comes calling, right? Yeah. <laughs> so. The truth is for us as well, it wasn't just a money thing. It, it, I believe in open source. I think it is the best way to develop uh, certain infrastructure software in particular. Open source is wonderful because it's, it, you don't have to do requirements gathering in the quite the same way because people will come to you and they'll say, Hey, you know, I see your product. I, you know, what you're doing is kind of good. It didn't fix this problem. So here's a PR that fixes it, you know, so it has this sort of self, right. you know, sort of self-directing self-healing character. It's also a great way to disseminate technology just by making it, Hey, go, you know, you want to use it. Okay. We're making, we're building binaries. Want to build it yourself. Fine. Just go fork the repo. Uh, run the run the build yourself. If you see something you don't like, give us a PR. It is a really amazing, amazingly productive way of generating, uh, you, you know, of um, of creating complex system software. So, so we're really bullish on on open source for that reason. Plus, it's fun. I like open yeah. source communities. Uh, the the MySQL community, the ClickHouse community. There's there's sort of really really great people in those communities, and part of it is just the the sharing and, you know, together learning about these problems together, you know, as a, as a, as a group or as a, as an organization and not just, you know, being inside the walls of some corporation. Right. No, that that's totally true. I mean, that's how I ended up here, you know, working in an integrator that focuses on yeah. open source. So yeah. it's, it's definitely a completely different, you know, business lifestyle, um, yep. the way you build relationships. So it's quite unique in that way. Yeah. Um, one, one thing I wanted to pivot to real quick, you had mentioned that you guys have built, um, an operator. Yes. Um, you know, so obviously you're running, you're running ClickHouse on Kubernetes. Yes. Which is still kind of newish, right? There's, you know, there's purpose built databases for Kubernetes. Um, a lot of the traditionals tend to stay outside the cluster. Um, you know, you call out to it and, and I don't think a lot of customers have solved for that or have a great understanding of, you know, when should I leverage a database on Kubernetes? Clearly you guys have a point of view on this. So I'd love to hear what your thoughts are. Yeah, absolutely. Well, my, I can tell you what my previous point of view was, uh, I, I thought it was crazy to run databases on Kubernetes. I, I, (laughs) when I, when I came to, before I came to this company, I was working at VMware and. I I went out and uh, you know I was I had dinner with the uh, with a couple guys on the board because we were discussing should you know could I you know join the company and um, and they said hey well we think Kubernetes is coming is the is the cat is the next the next big wave of technology and we want to make ClickHouse run on Kubernetes and I just thought that was a terrible idea part of it was because not, you know, like a few weeks before I had managed to delete the Helm installation in a production Kubernetes uh, uh, cluster at VMware. And it wasn't just that I deleted it. Anybody, can, any fool can do that. I deleted something I could not see. So it was in the, mm. you know, it was, you know, for Kubernetes fans, it was in the cube system namespace. I, I couldn't see cube system. Um, I should not have been able to, to, to alter things in cube system by, by issuing the wrong command without specifying a namespace, I, I zapped Helm. And that made a deep impression on me because it's like, hey, this thing's not ready for game, for, you know, for prime time. There's just no protections inside the cluster. Well, make a long story short, we, we went ahead with Kubernetes, <clears throat> built the operator, and it's turned out to be really good. Um, first of all, 
operators themselves are a really great innovation in Kubernetes. I think more than anything else, they made Kubernetes safe for data. And the reason is that instead of having to do these very complex resource definitions, which you then have to manage every single resource, the operator creates a new type of resource that describes the database ideally as simply as possible. You know, maybe a piece of YAML about 12 inches long. And it not only creates the, the database cluster in our case, but it also manages upgrades. It also allows you to expand, for example, add, uh, you know, add disk, uh, you know, flip the VMs so that they, you know, so the pods have, have greater compute capacity, so on and so forth. That turned out to be really powerful. Um, so from a management perspective, that's advantage number one. Advantage number two, Kubernetes is very portable. I mean, people talk about portability and, you know, they stress the complexity, but if you move from GCP to OS and you're not using something like Kubernetes, you're going to have to deal with a whole new set of APIs that do close to the same thing, but just in completely different ways. And when we, like, when we were initially dealing with this, Terraform support was really good. When we were building our cloud, Terraform support on OS was really good. It was bad on GCP. So we had like Ansible in one case, Terraform in another. Yeah. Uh, and that was to, you know, to bring up the, the, to bring up Kubernetes in the first place. But Kubernetes itself, once it was up, our stuff basically just ran. And, you know, with almost, with, with no changes in both places. So that's thing number two that, the, you know, this portability. So for somebody who's running a SaaS, it's a really big advantage. The third thing, and I think this is something that's starting to emerge more clearly, is people don't just run a database. They build a stack. So you have ClickHouse, but for ClickHouse to become a reporting platform, it needs monitoring. So it needs Prometheus. It needs Grafana. Um, it needs uh, ingest tools. It may need Kafka locally. Uh, there's a bunch of, and then it may need things like edit, SQL editing tools. What Kubernetes is really good at is, and we see this with projects like Argo CD, you can build stacks. And not only can you build them, but you can store the code in, in uh, GitHub or GitLab, and you can then incrementally change them in ways that are safe, controllable, and also replicable across multiple environments, you know, like staging to prod or, you know, like Frankfurt to Ireland to US East, uh, you know, that this is something that Kubernetes does, does very well. So I think there's some big reasons why, why it has grown and, and in spite of the complexity of operating it, it's become a really great environment for running databases and the software that, that uses those databases. Yeah, that all makes sense. I mean, that's that's a that's a very similar, um, compelling argument that we have just yeah. around applications. Yep. That that run on Kubernetes, right? And right. I think that what the market's going to figure out in the next few years, big part of what we do at Shadowsoft, is if you can tame what Kubernetes is, and by taming we mm. mean understanding how it works, how it's yes. intended to be used, um, not just taking a hammer to it when you need uh, a screwdriver. Right. That's, it's often a, it's a tool problem, you know, and right. those tools can be people, right? <laughs> I don't know how this works. So I'm just going to go do the normal kind of sysadmin things that I do and hope I don't kill the thing. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, that's, that's a lot of our interaction with customers is that they maybe don't have the experience, the skills, the training to kind of wrangle Kubernetes. That's how they would describe right. it. And we go, right. 
Well, no, you just need to understand Kubernetes. Don't don't treat Kubernetes like a dog if it's a cat. Right. They're different animals, right? Right. right. And and I think the education around that in the marketplace has been um slow. You know, a lot of people just yeah. think of Kubernetes as like another virtualization platform. Right. Do you like, do you guys use do you guys use managed Kubernetes? Uh, you know, like EKS or GKE? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We're you know, we focus on all yeah, all the Kubernetes distributions for the most part. Right. Because they all have advantages and slight disadvantages based on your use case. So Right. You know, a managed, you know, Kubernetes service like EKS or AKS or GKE, there's big advantages to that. If yep. if you don't want to manage everything. Like you don't want right. to manage etcd, great. Great. You should do that. But yep. you are giving something up. Right. And it's just understanding what you are giving up. Yeah, I think those managed Kubernetes for the broader market has just been a game changer. That's another thing I should mention about what, you know, what drove it, the adoption. We now find that typically when we talk to somebody, um, you know, if they're on Amazon and they're using Kubernetes, 90% chance they're using EKS. We use yeah. it ourselves. Um, it doesn't take, as you say, there's a trade and, you know, you can go into the weeds on that. But the fact is, it's really cheap. I mean, the cloud, it's like, you know, yes. 10 cents an hour to, to run it. Um, it's, it's been a, a big step forward because then the amount of complexity that people have to absorb is just then becomes more like, okay, just get the app to work, which is, you know, within the grasp of most developers, they can figure that part out. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and you know, so if you're not looking for a full blown development platform, mm -hmm. EKS is awesome. And that's yeah. why, I mean, I, I think the stat was it's. I think 75% of Kubernetes deployments are on EKS. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because it's, it's been, easy. It just it's works. Been, it's been phenomenally successful. I had, and, and actually, you know, people running Kubernetes is hard. Putting an app on it is not that bad. Right. Um, and even the running is not too bad. At least in my case, I had an, uh, an intellectual advantage, which was I came from VMware. And if you've ever used like some of the, <laughs> you know, like VMware networking, for example, NSX is not, it, it takes, you have to really wrap your brain around that. Right. Um, so coming to the cloud and running Kubernetes didn't really seem that bad at all. Right. But you had to, you had to learn the VMware way to do that. Right. Uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. And I appreciated the fact that VMware is much more complex because it actually, the virtualization, I think a principal reasons, the virtualization is much deeper than what you get on Kubernetes. Uh, because it's creating the, it's fully virtualizing the environment. Right. Um, whereas Kubernetes, you're dealing with containers, which are really just processes. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's, you know, it'll be interesting to see how our friends at VMware um, navigate the next year as well with the, uh, you I'm know, the Broadcom. Like, yeah. <laughs> Thoughts and prayers. They, they are, we, uh, I still have, you know, abundant contacts at, at VMware and I, w I wish them well. That's, uh, that's yeah. a great company. No, it's and you know, and they've they've built some great technology. Absolutely. Um, I was I was just at a a thing last night uh, in Dallas, Texas, and you know everybody's talking about the uncertainty around um, virtualization. Mm -hmm. Like, and I was like, guys, there's no uncertainty. VMware won the war ten years ago. Oh my it's god, it's a yeah. great product. Yes, and there's not yeah. even there's not even anything that even sniffs as a concern. Right. right. So, but you know, customers are always like, you know, cost and <clears throat> investment and product growth, but like, you know, the virtualization platform is excellent. That's mm -hmm. why they've been number one for mm -hmm. 
God knows, 15, 20 years, right? So <laughs> people made mm -hmm. careers selling I, VMware. So, right. And I think VMware recognized in, in a very, very timely fashion, how big Kubernetes was going to be. They, they sort of missed the boat on OpenStack and that put the, the fear of God into them. I, I know mm -hmm. this for a fact because this is something their their execs, you know, freely admitted that they didn't see that one coming. But Kubernetes, when it when it arose, Kubernetes is the new private cloud, and uh, it's a different way. It's a different take on the problem, but the problem that it solves is very similar. Yeah. Um, and so VMware was invested in cloud native. I joined in 2014. They they had been looking at cloud native, I think, for years before that. They were, and they. They're they're fairly aggressive about you know acquiring companies like Heptio and trying to get into the market. Whether they succeed in this broad market, where they don't have the advantage that they did with ESX, it remains to be seen. But it's not for lack of trying and not for lack of recognizing the right. importance. Yeah, totally agree. Um, well, we hit a bunch of that. So I always always like to ask this question. You've um you've seen a lot of different things in your career. Uh, what's some advice you'd give? a young person who's mm -hmm. coming up in technology, just anything. It could be any antidote, maybe something someone shared with you, but just one piece of advice for them. I, yeah. You have to keep learning. And I, I mean, that's kind of trivial, but maybe I can be more specific. I don't have a formal background in computer science. Um, I do like math that helps. And, uh, but most of what I studied at university was things like Japanese and history and economics. And mm. what, but the reason that, that I've been able to s stay in the game is I'm kind of obsessed with understanding how things work. So always, you have to keep digging on the technology. It bothers me intensely. If I see a piece of software, like the, uh, we were talking about uh, keychains, uh, I don't understand how they, why they work and it drives me nuts and I really need to take the time to understand it. But Kubernetes, like what's going on down there, figure this out, get it into your head and just stay current on the technology. And when something new comes up that you don't understand, dig in and understand that too. If you do that, you'll continue to ride these waves. Uh, you will never run out of things. You'll never run out of things to learn, not in our lifetimes and you will stay current and stay, uh, you know, stay relevant in the field and you'll have more fun. So that would be my, you know, keep learning, keep digging to understand how things work inside and then apply them. That's it's good advice. It, it's we've, we've had it on the podcast before from very smart people. You know, the way, the way to continue to grow is to continue to be curious. Exactly. The moment you stop being curious, you're, you should do something gonna else. pass you by. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> go, go do something else. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. Well, g give us one last plug on your company. And um... yeah, I'd, I'd love to. So we're Altinity. We are a full service provider for ClickHouse. We run it in the cloud. We help you run it in your own environments. And we make you successful with real-time applications that will make your business competitive and make you feel good about what you're doing. Oh, you're built for TV and radio. Look at that. That was a perfect <laughs> pitch. That was amazing. I get paid to do that, so it's really not fair. It's, <laughs> it's part of my job, but it's fun, too. That's good. Robert, thank yeah. you so much for your time. It was a really compelling conversation, and yeah. uh, thanks for sharing with everybody. Thank you, Nick. It's been a pleasure on the uh, being on the show, and I'm sure we'll get together. It sounds like we have a lot of common interests. Yeah, absolutely. All right. All right. Talk to you soon. See you. Bye. Bye. 
Dynatrace exists to make the world software work perfectly. Their unified software intelligence platform combines broad and deep observability and continuous runtime application security with the most advanced AI ops to provide answers and intelligent automation from data at an enormous scale. This enables innovators to modernize and automate cloud operations, deliver software faster and more securely, and ensure flawless digital experiences. That is why the world's largest organizations trust Dynatrace to accelerate digital transformation. 